0: Episode 196 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 26th of September 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Howdy. Graham. Hello, everyone. And Will. Hello. I would normally make a joke about politics and stuff, but it's just too dire. There's just nothing funny about what's happening at the moment. So instead, I will say a huge thank you to Michael, who sent me a Lemon 3. What's a Lemon 3, you ask? What's a Lemon 3? Well, it's a little portable synthesizer slash sampler type thing much like an op1 from teenage engineering which is like the famous mini synth sampler thing but this is a lemon 3 lmn3 and if you think about it lmnop1 mm. ah, very clever and so this is totally open source we talked about it a while ago and uh, michael emailed in to say do you want one and sent me one and so the brain of it is a raspberry pi he sent me everything except the pi which i already had and uh i've been checking it out and i i don't have a full report yet because it's a bit of a learning curve to learn a new digital audio workstation and stuff but i've got it all working now and uh hopefully i'll make some music on it soon but uh we'll see but yeah thank you very much michael it's really appreciated let's do some news then and the biggest news is that systemd is now available in windows subsystem for linux microsoft worked with canonical on this and it's a pretty big deal because it means that loads of stuff that depends on systemd now works in wsl including snaps so presumably you knew about this graham
1: not directly no in fact didn't i say something about systemd and snaps a little while ago, and I was completely ignorant of the fact that Canonical, or at least Canonical, had taken the idea based on um, Danny Lennon's kind of proof of concept yeah, and worked with Microsoft to deliver it. So I was kind of, no, not officially, no, to be honest with you. I didn't know. I, it's a bit out of my loop. And this, of course, has got nothing to do with Leonard going to work for Microsoft <laughs> recently. God, I forgot about that. Not that I'm aware of, No. But as I say, I'm completely ignorant of of this happening in the first place. I think it's pretty cool. I've always joked about it. I know Phelan's going to hate me, but, you know, it makes it... God, it's all kinds of wrong with saying it brings it closer to a true Linux, isn't it? (laughs) I don't know. Windows stopped being relevant to me a long time ago, and I'm so happy for
2: that. Almost that I don't care what they do. This annoys me is the fact that they're trying to creep back into relevance, and that's annoying. But... uh, Yeah, I'm just glad I don't have to work with any of this stuff anymore. It's a a horrible operating system, and this only barely makes it
0: okay, I guess. But there's some people, and we say this every time, there's some people who have to use it for work. I've had to use it for work, but I used a VM, and it was
2: fine. I mean, the modern computer is so quick that a VM on, like it was VirtualBox I was using at the time, there was no discernible difference in being a native machine and being a VM because it was sitting on an SSD. So it was such a waste. I mean, if you think of a waste of money to just essentially run an email program and VirtualBox is what I was using it for. I mean, I'm sure not everybody was doing that, but... I don't know. I just find it amazing that people are still willing. Because you think every time you've got a Windows machine and a Windows server, you've got a client access license. So that's where all the real money is because it's the allowing you to connect to the server nonsense. It's such a
1: terrible system. Oh, we've been over all of this so many times before. I know. But (laughs) it's a terrible system. And then now you can... Use Linux on it. And surely those lots of those people are going to be convinced that going natively Linux will be a great thing Then they would never have had that exposure.
2: They won't, though. That's the thing. I don't think we're going to get anything
1: from this. I think this is just giving Windows the ability to run our stuff. And this is exactly the same conversation we've had. I know. I can it's feel my, my blood pressure stops. rising slowly. Right. <laughs> like... There are probably millions of more people using Linux because of this yeah prove it that's what i'd say
0: because we can't prove it we don't know any different well my understanding is that it is true there are millions of people using this and yeah there's no proper proof of that but uh, logic is the proof of it there are a billion plus windows users it's only some fraction of them that has to be using this to be millions even if it's hundreds of thousands that's still significant but here's the thing though does that help us
2: that's what I'd like to know. Like, is that going to make somebody switch full time? I'm not sure. This is where I think we. I genuinely think if somebody was interested in doing a PhD study on this type of stuff, it would be actually useful to see is there any real, genuine conversion? Because
1: otherwise, we're just allowing them to get off scot free and not switch to Linux. No, it's a, it's a. I, these days, I think it's irrelevant, Phelan. Yeah. I think it's the host environment, and they're running Linux. Yeah. Just as much as, you know, the electricity or whatever. We talked about the screens the last time we talked about this. The firmware and the monitor.
3: There's a much better chance of somebody... Running, uh, well, in the example they give MySQL, but let's think about some, some other examples running Django or something that they could have run on Windows, but would prefer to run it on Linux. And then they will start using applications and they'll start being able to give feedback to applications and open bugs and put pull requests up and start contributing to open source software. I think we had. The, the conversation about what's more important, the applications or the operating system being open source, uh, a little while ago, I can't remember what we said back then, but it, this says to me that the applications are what's important and the operating system on the
2: desktop is less so. And I would agree with all those things, and that would be fine if I didn't think that there was going to be some effort to try and stop general-purpose machines being available to anybody who wants them. Things like the lockdown on the BIOS booting and stuff. If I thought they would actually play fair in that and say, here's a machine, do it at what you want. No, they're not going to do that. They're going to make it as locked down as possible. So you can't use the operating system that you actually want. And that's where I think the danger is, the fact that if we don't have the numbers or we don't have the ability to you know, fund all those wee companies that actually do build their own motherboards and stuff like that, then
0: we end up in a position where we have nothing at the end of it. Maybe a Raspberry Pi if we're lucky. Well, I think this is good. I think that... Making it more functional is good because if someone is going to make a conscious choice to use WSL, then that necessarily means that they don't want to use Linux on the desktop. And to make them have a better time running Linux on an alternative desktop, Uh, that's got to be good. No, this is all so wrong. The only reason they have to use WSL is because
2: we beat them on the server. And anybody who's doing it in proper server-wise is going to be using Linux, uh, where we have actually beat them. And now they're just, oh, dear God, how do we plug this hole? Because it, as soon as we don't do something about this, then everybody's going to be switching to Linux on desktop too. That's what, exactly what this is. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ.
0: <laughs> oh, fade in. You, you just, uh, you're nothing if not consistent.
2: Okay, well, look, I, I can fucking, I can tell you it's all, it's all happening. When it happens, I expect you all to write me a check. <laughs> yeah, all right,
0: right, will do.
3: i tell you what it tells me, or rather what it suggests to me, is that the chances of Canonical being bought by Microsoft are getting closer by the day. Oh,
2: fuck off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Traditional endpoint security tools can make your workplace feel like a surveillance state, turn users and the IT team into adversaries, and ultimately drive your employees to work on unsecured personal devices. It doesn't have to be this way. Collide is a device security solution built around honest security. Their philosophy is that employees aren't your biggest security risk, they're your biggest allies, and your relationship with them should be based on transparency and informed consent. Collide works by notifying your employees of security issues via Slack and giving them step-by-step instructions on how to resolve them themselves. For IT and security teams, Collide provides the right level of visibility for Mac, Windows and Linux devices. It can answer questions about your fleet security that traditional MDMs can't. You can meet your security goals without compromising your values. Visit collide.com slash late night Linux to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. Audacity 3.2 has been released with real-time effects and VST3 support. This is quite a change, quite an improvement.
1: This is the single thing that I've been complaining about in Audacity for 10 years. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. So we should explain that prior to this release adding an effect such as a delay or a reverb or a distortion effect, you'd select the audio and then you'd choose the effect from the effect drop-down menu. And then a little kind of dialogue would show and you could change the settings, then you could preview the sound. But then you'd have to apply the sound. So it was all kind of done offline. But with real these real-time effects, you basically enable the real-time effects panel, which appears on the left of the waveform. And then you can put effects into that like on a on a mixer, if you have a real mixer, and choose the settings. And then the sound is automatically applied to the playback. It's not printed in audio terms to the audio track. It's just there as a real-time process that you can change during playback. Nothing's actually fixed until you record or output a mix down. Is this like layers in a graphics application? Exactly like that. Exactly the same thing. That's a really good analogy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The difference between having those layers still and then having to flatten them or merge those
1: layers. Yeah. Yeah. And the merge is a mix. I have
2: this uh,
0: this horrible
2: lack of knowledge of these things, but I remember using one, and it used to have to have this like drawing of a graph if you wanted to increase the effect and all that. And how does it
0: handle that? Do you know automation?
2: Yeah, it's like you might want more, I don't know, delay. So you might want more delay and then you draw the peak of the graph will go higher at a certain point in the waveform, then lower. It's like, I don't know, is it an envelope or something? I have no idea what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, you basically just draw the level of the effect or one parameter of it or whatever. I don't think automation is in right. this version yet, but presumably that is on the, uh, the agenda long term. Because this is a huge change in of itself. You're talking about the difference between offline effects and effectively inserts, which is, I I don't know what they've done, but the the fact that this is just a 3.2, I mean, this should have been 4, surely, because this is a massive, massive difference. It turns it into a proper digital audio workstation, rather than a sort of souped-up wave editor, which is essentially what it was before.
1: Yeah, and there are all kinds of advantages. I know that you've never been too bothered, Joe, but at least back in the day when you used to do a lot of this stuff and with Wavelab, which was one of the first things to do this, you used it because you never wanted to commit. Because mm. if you had two or three effects in, running in parallel or serial, if it provided it, they all interact with each other in different ways. So you'd always be tweaking the parameters. And as you've edited more and more into the audio file, the dynamics may change to an extent that you have to change the effect parameters, and you couldn't do that if you'd already you know, flattened the effect to the file. Yeah. Just like you'd use a door for now. But um, yeah, it's a a really great function.
0: Yeah, although I did try this on Windows and um, none of my old 32-bit VSTs worked with it, unfortunately. I would imagine that more modern ones probably do. Presumably you tried it on your fancy Mac.
1: I did try it on my Mac and I'm recording this podcast into it now. I'm <laughs> oh, mad. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm not running any of the real-time effects on it, but I did play around with it. It took ages to scan my effects library <laughs> and I haven't got a huge effects library, <laughs> maybe a hundred, but it took 20 minutes. Wow. Which is a bit worrying um, and found all kinds of incompatible ones. But some worked. Yeah, some did work. I've not had much chance to play with it, but you enable the real time effects that opens a panel and then you can create add effects from a drop down list in that panel on the left.
0: Now, people did give them a lot of shit when they were bought out and made some PR gaffes. But come on, this is real progress, real feature additions here. I think we, we have to kind of uh, eat any negative words that we had at the time about the buyout.
2: Is this like the sugar and there's the secret nastiness going on underneath here? Uh, like, what
0: what what's the uh, catch? Surely there's some. I really hope not, is all I can say to that. I really, really hope you're wrong. And I hope that it is all just going to be positive stuff like this.
1: Yeah. If this is the kind of features that are a
0: result of the buyout, then it's a good thing. So it's Mozilla bashing time again. Or maybe not. We'll see. So Mozilla put out a report that basically blamed the demise of Firefox or at least the uh, waning popularity of it on the likes of Microsoft, Google and Apple for basically the same shit that Microsoft got up to in the 90s was it with forcing internet explorer or at least bundling it and um i mean we've seen evidence of this actually with screenshots from windows telling you you know oh you don't want to be using that firefox you want to switch to edge it's better and faster and stuff like that so they kind of have a point but i don't know what do we think about this is it just them making excuses for their own failings
1: i'm gonna side with mozilla on this one I know what you're saying about their emotional response and making excuses, but I think they're doing the right thing by exposing it to people, maybe not us, who may might not be aware of the full extent of what goes on. And it's this kind of documenting issues and showing the evidence that may lead to like an antitrust case. I mean, that's what led to the original antitrust cases. So I think they're doing the right thing by highlighting it. Yeah. I think there's a valid criticism of Mozilla for kind of
2: dropping the ball a bit, but yeah, I mean, what a surprise the three companies who have their own platforms are willing to put their own thing ahead of everybody else. And if you try to disable bloody Windows Edge, it's a fucking nightmare because it keeps wanting to tell you that it's there and Apple won't even let you use any browser engine. Even if you do use Firefox, it's still Safari underneath. Like, it's fucking unreal. Like, yeah, on iOS, yeah.
3: That's a much bigger problem. I actually think that that's quite a good idea. It means that you've got a single attack surface for, for breaking in via the mobile than you have of all of these other ones. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. What concerns me most is that last time we went through this rigmarole and the antitrust campaigns found in favor of Firefox, look what happened. Fuck all.
0: <laughs> no, we got the browser ballot. That was amazing and really successful. There needs to be an antitrust ban hammer, and it just smashes through the front of Microsoft. <laughs> but I've talked about this before. Uh, a friend of mine, no longer with us, sadly, but um, I set him up with Firefox and then told him the importance of doing his software updates. This was on Windows XP years and years and years ago. And um, one day I went around to his for a drink or whatever, and uh, he was using Chrome. I said, oh, what's all this? Said, oh, yeah, it was uh, an update. And that's because you go to Google, or at least back then you went to Google in another browser, and it would say, download Chrome. And they made it sound like it was just something that you should do. They used that invaluable advertising space on the Google homepage to force people, or not force people, but uh, get people, let's say, to use Chrome. And um, here we are. But it's sort of is Mozilla's fault as well for taking their eye off the ball, fucking around with the phone, for example. Absolutely. That's what I was
2: saying. Like, like, you want to give them a kicking, but also, I mean, they're not wrong, but really, did they drop the ball as well?
0: And they had so much money. They had all that Yahoo money, like a billion dollars. And what have they got to show for it? Fuck all.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: this was a huge challenge for them. And they just didn't stand up to it. They had the money. They had the resources. They had the engineering talent. But somehow, they just didn't deliver. And it just feels like excuses to me.
1: I mean, you're right. We didn't want to go down this road.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Let's say legitimate excuses. Like, it, it caused a huge problem for them. It was a huge challenge. And it made it so it was incredibly hard. And so you can almost forgive them. Maybe you can forgive them for the failings that resulted from that huge challenge, that huge problem. But just because something's really, really hard doesn't mean it's impossible.
1: Yeah, and you do get the feeling that they knew this was going to happen years ago and so they didn't really bother.
0: Well, we all saw it coming. I remember when Chrome came out and I knew straight away, yeah, this is going to be huge. They must have known that. Yeah. But they rested on their yannies, didn't they?
1: Well, for a small time, there was this kind of arms race in JavaScript compatibility which everybody benefited from. And then Firefox started to fall behind. Maybe they just need to be the underdog. This is is to get them
0: spurred up and fired up in the morning. Well, maybe. And maybe the publicity of a big antitrust case might be the publicity that they need to actually get back into people's heads as an idea that you can use Firefox. Because I would imagine that there's a lot of people out there that have just forgotten about it. What would be nice if that
2: whole antitrust mechanism was quicker, that they could just say okay, we see what you're doing here, just stop. And this is how you should do it. Like, you know, when those ads came out, like you used to see it when you used to search on Google in a Firefox browser it would say, you should use Chrome. It's like, well, of course, people who might fall for that would easily do so. And yeah, there's, there needs to be something that can just step in quick because it, it all moves so fast. I mean, it's just
0: a quick tweak to a web page, and then you're, you're up to shenanigans and they can tweak it back. I know, but what you're talking about is legal process and legal process... Happens slowly for a reason, because it shouldn't be rushed. Because in this case, it seems like it's an obvious thing from our point of view. That yeah, you've you've got to just fix this instantly. But as with any legal process, it needs to be carefully considered, and you can't rush into things. So uh, I, t- I take your point, but I think you've got to be careful with rushed decisions.
2: Cattle prods. That's what we need. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late-night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Onto to a bit of admin then, and first of all, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon, we really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to lateNightLinux.com support, and remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime, and do check out those two shows. We did uh, one about telemetry in FOSS recently, Linux Downtime, and uh, we've already had quite a bit of feedback about that. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do KDE Corner then. The first one, Intel becomes the first Krita Development Fund corporate gold patron. And the press release for this talks about how Intel are going to contribute towards uh, making it work on their new ARC graphics cards and make sure it all works nicely on their new hardware and stuff. So, you know, there's no such thing as true altruism, is there? This is about... Looking good for Intel, making sure that a leading graphical application works well on their hardware. But, you know, fair play to them. This is open source software that they're supporting. And um, so they kind of deserve the uh, PR. Yeah.
2: And I think it's great because that development fund seems to be really going quite strong. There's about 7,500 euros monthly contributions, 404 individuals, and well, one corporate now. So I guess that's them. And if you're an artist who's on Windows or Mac or Linux and you use Creta great way to contribute, nice, easy way to do it here too.
0: Yeah, and they also talk about in this press release about the new JPEG-XL file format, which I'd never even heard of. But yeah, apparently it's a new version of JPEG that is has uh, got better compression. So that feature has landed as a result of this funding, they reckon. And none of us are particularly graphical, are we? But, no. uh, <laughs> but that presumably is a big deal to a lot of people. And it, you know, it's it's. I mean, we've never even heard of it. Has anyone here heard of JPEG XL?
1: Nope. No, not even on mucky JPEGs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, JPEG XXX maybe. But uh, that means that this must be a cutting-edge feature, which is coming to open source, maybe first, or at least you know, alongside proprietary stuff. So, excellent stuff. Related to this, there's a Caden Live fundraiser. Now, the goal is $15,000, which doesn't seem that much compared to the sweet Intel money. <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> yeah, who knows how much that was. But uh, they are 9,000 euros, 9,200 as we record, of their 15,000 goal. And uh, they talk about some of the features that will result from this. And once again, none of us really <laughs> know about video <laughs> editing. <laughs> But I do know that Caden Live is great. Like, I I can't remember, I had to do some square video for some social media post or something, and it was, the the, the documentation was great, and it's much more powerful than OpenShot. OpenShot's great if you just want to do a sort of, put a couple of clips together, but Caden Live is so much more powerful.
2: I have actually managed to use it for something, I just didn't do a very good job of using it, and I, I don't know, it's just one of those things where I know it's not my area, so I just, I'm not going to even pretend I know what I'm doing, but... All the features sound pretty good. And the stability one, I like the best because uh, I think it's, you know, they use that melt framework, I think it's called in the back. So it's always hit and miss whether that cannot be reliable or not. So lots of uh testing and development on that would be great.
0: And there's a couple of this week in KDE's as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, won't go too much in them because we kind of covered this already, but Plasma 526 is coming out. At the start of October, I think it's around the 11th, and Nate has talked about the fact that they're doing a whole lot of bug fixes it. it's had a month-long beta and some of the new features that are coming in there too, but it's mainly down to making it nice and stable, and some of the extra things are, are quite nice in there as well. So just a big list of stuff to go through for people at home
0: if they want to check that out. Strong and stable. Strong and stable indeed. Yeah, nice. All right, Plasma Big Screen This is, as the name suggests, a TV interface based around Plasma that's available for various ARM boards and stuff with uh, either Manjaro or PostMarket OS. I was a bit surprised that there's no option to easily add this to an x86 installation of Linux, though.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. It would be great to run it on a Nook or something plugged into a TV. Yeah, because I
0: did try this out on uh, Raspberry Pi, and um, it was a little bit buggy to be honest but the idea of it looked pretty cool.
1: I really like the idea as well. You know, we're talking about LG was it being on the shit list for <laughs> NFTs. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, I'm getting we're all kind of depressed at the state of smart TVs and it would be nice to just be able to turn a nice OLED monitor into a, an actual TV as much as they are now. And I also like the fact that this is fully Wayland supported as well which I don't
2: really know how OpenElect that I use with Kodi works. I think it does it native, like frame buffer type stuff, but I'd feel so much better if this was running on my Pi for the TV. I think it just, I've, I've seen a few things where I've not been overly impressed and it seems to be a bit slow on development as well. And, you know, KD Connect talking to this. I mean, KD Connect talks to my TV anyway, sharing it out. But to have it fully
0: integrated, yeah, it would be quite cool, I think. Oh, yeah, and it's front and center, KDE Connect. It's right there on the, well, it's not really a desktop, is it, but the, the home screen or whatever you want to call it. But that is so handy for my
2: phone, where I, if I find something that's good on YouTube and I say, oh, right, send to TV, and bang, mm. off it goes, and it, it's straight there on TV. It's just fantastic. Like, it's such a handy feature.
0: Yeah. It seems like it is early days, though. As I said, it was a bit buggy, but it's a great foundation, so I hope they develop this into something that we can all use. And, uh, yeah, like I said, it would be nice if we could have it easy on uh, X86. I'm sure you could build it. But there was just no easy instructions and I didn't have that much time to check it out. So I just checked it out on the Pi and it, it just sort of crashed a little bit and stuff. But it's it's definitely a good start. So uh, fingers crossed on that one. So a new version of KDE Neon is imminent and it's going to be based on Ubuntu 2204. And they have to decide what they're going to do about Firefox. Do they just ship it as a snap and ship the uh, ISOs soon? Or do they wait a little bit longer and sort it out properly and so there's a twitter poll that's had 700 votes so far and it's about 75 25 in favor of not using snap shock horror it's been fairly stable percentage wise as well even
2: though the numbers have shot up from the 11 people that had already voted it when i went to vote on it
0: (laughs) yeah i voted not snap even though it's i don't really care
2: i mean i don't really care but i've heard that snap has a few issues with certain things and i'm a bit worried my plugins are going to start breaking and things like that and where i save files because they're not in my home directory if that that's going to cause problems as well so i'm half tempted to kind of switch to the ppa which i sent you earlier today i don't know if you thought it was more official than i was I wasn't sure at the time it does look to be an official mozilla ppa yeah it does it just talks about esr uh, and then it actually has all of the versions anyway it even has up to 105 there as well So. I just don't want my stuff to break. That's
0: <laughs> well, that's why I say just get the, the binary, and it self-updates. Just change the shortcuts to it. Just get the, the tarball. You know, that's what I've been doing on 22 or 4 systems. An overwritable binary in your home directory. <laughs> <laughs> what could go wrong? Nothing could go wrong. It's all fine. <laughs> yeah, just 777 it. It'll be fine. <laughs> Magic. <laughs> might just do that to be home whole directory while I'm at it (laughs) like yeah why not cool (laughs) right well we better get out of here then we'll be back next week when we'll have all sorts to talk about but until then
1: I've been Joe I've been Phelan I've been Graham and I've been Will see you later